You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, LeChuck, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. When we think about a gold rush, those of us, here in the U.S. at least, most of us tend to think about the gold rush of 1849. Gold was found out west, and suddenly thousands of prospectors undertook the journey through sweeping plains and dangerous Native American territory, across the Rocky Mountains, and into an endless desert. That was the birth of the Old West. Now, the West was in reality a bit less wild than some in pop culture might make it out to be, but gunfights and cattle rustling and armed gangs battling U.S. Marshals were a reality of the time. Really, it's not that dissimilar from the Golden Age of Piracy. You have newly claimed territories filled with settlers and lawless men and women looking to strike it rich, robbing people, clashing with authorities, and clashing with the Spanish, and you have dens of sin that served up drink and women and gambling to anyone that could pay. Now, we would need to switch out the rum for whiskey and the ships for horses, but, you know, they both had cool boots and fantastic hats, so basically the same thing. However, those 49ers in 1849 were small-timers when it came to gold rushes. Possibly the greatest gold rush the world has ever known was that of the first decades of the 16th century. It would be almost impossible to overstate the desire for gold that gripped the hearts of the Spanish people when reports started coming back from what they thought was India, and not the desire for wealth, exactly, at least not just that. There were other roads by which someone could get wealthy, pearls or land or increasingly through sugar or salt. I mean, salt was one of the greatest commodities in the world at the time. It was worth a comparable amount to gold by weight, and there were amazing salt mines in the Americas. But salt just isn't the same. I once bought some gold coins. It's a decent investment, apparently, when times seem particularly troubled. Plus, I do a show about pirates. I thought that I should know what it feels like to hold a physical gold coin in my hand. And it felt, well, there's something almost mystical about gold. 
it's hard to explain. I had this moment of dragon sickness, maybe. That sudden lust to hoard as much of the stuff as possible. Now, I only had one tiny coin, one-tenth of an ounce. But I immediately started thinking about how to budget gold into my monthly expenses and planning when would be the best time to buy, strategically speaking. But then I stopped myself. And I thought, oh, that's what it feels like. But if someone told me today that it turns out Mars is made entirely of solid gold, I would immediately try to stow away on a rocket and make my way up to space. So when Columbus returned from his first voyage and word began to spread that India was a land where there were literal mountains of gold, where the rivers flowed with raw gold nuggets, there was this sudden and immediate feeling. Nearly every man in Spain wanted a piece of it. This put a very real lust for gold in the hearts of many Spaniards, and there was a lust for more than that. There was the call to adventure, to travel and exploration. There was the desire not just for gold as a material, but to get rich. And then there was a very real desire to bring the word of God to heathen peoples. Anyone who had that will for adventure and who had the funds to buy their way on board, signed up for a voyage to the New World. This is what gave us the conquistadors. And then there was a lust for, well, just lust, really. Edward Kritzler puts it perfectly in Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean, quote, A golden thread had wound its way into the fabric of every Spaniard's imagination, it wove an exotic pattern of desire, stirring a man's dreams. Wherever men gathered, the talk was the same. Tales of opulent cities with riches beyond belief and beautiful naked maidens aching to please. End quote. But there was one group in Spain that was somewhat immune from that dragon sickness, from that lust for American gold. That group was too busy dealing with the fallout from the recent proclamation that they were no longer welcome in their homes. That was the Sephardi Jews. Now, I don't want to misrepresent them here. There were plenty of young Jewish men and converted Jews that signed up to be conquistadors. They wanted to go in search of lands to conquer and those mountains of gold. According to Juan Gill from the University of Seville in his work The Conversos and the Inquisition of Seville, there were more than 100 conversos, or crypto-Jews perhaps, with the expedition of Hernan Cortes alone. It has been suggested that nearly every expedition of conquistadors had at least a few Jews among them. They had centuries of experience working with Islamic navigators and mapmakers, and well, the Iberian Jews had tools and knowledge that the Catholic Spanish still really didn't. However, the fervor that gripped the hearts of most of Spain to acquire gold passed by the majority of the Jewish and crypto-Jewish population of Iberia. At the time, they had bigger things to worry about. This is episode 73, Threads of Gold. Today's show was going to be Jewish Pirates of the West Indies Part 2, but as it turned out, there weren't very many pirates, and much of today's story takes place far from the West Indies. However, it does still circle around the story of the Iberian Sephardi Jews that were now on Jamaica. If you missed last week's episode and are wondering what conversos and crypto-Jews are, you really should just go listen to last week's show. 
but if you want a quick refresher, here goes. In 1478, Queen Isabella called for an inquisition to deal with Jewish heretics in her land. That inquisition put thousands of Jews under questioning and torture. They gave those Jews three options. First, you could convert to Catholicism. Do so and your family would be granted the full rights and privileges of Spanish citizenship. Hundreds of thousands of Jews did convert, and those they were called conversos. Now, many of those conversos entered government or the military or even rose into the ranks of the nobility. Some of them were quite high in the Spanish court. But the second option given to the Jewish population was to leave Spain. Hundreds of thousands of Jews chose that route. They went mostly to either Italy, North Africa, or Portugal, and most of them went to Portugal. It was connected by land, it was very nearby, and... It was familiar. It was also relatively tolerant and did not yet belong to Spain. They had a third option. They could stay there in Spain, but they would be a lower class, virtually without rights. Now, many did choose that option. They didn't want to leave their homes. Perhaps they thought that this trouble, this inquisition, would pass them by. They had survived many other such troubles, but this inquisition didn't pass. It got worse. In 1492, on the same day that Christopher Columbus set sail, the Catholic monarchs Ferdinand and Isabella declared that all Jews in their combined kingdom had four months to make a choice. They could convert, leave the kingdom, or be disposed of. Many chose conversion, but most of them didn't really convert. You can't make somebody legitimately change their beliefs by threat of death. Really, it's hard to say even how many of those earlier conversos in 1478 actually converted. It was sort of an open secret that many of them didn't really believe. And the Spanish called the false converts, well, they called them pigs, meranos. Now, we call them today crypto-Jews, a Jewish population in Spain hiding their true faith. If they were questioned, they would claim to be conversos, and they would usually add that they were Portuguese. Now, many of them by this point actually were Portuguese, but it was a clever way to keep themselves out of the hands of the Inquisition. By about 1515, Portugal housed around 250,000 Jews. That's nearly the entire Jewish population of Iberia. They called themselves Portuguese conversos. They still pretended to be Catholic. In the meanwhile, though, thousands of Jews were arriving in the New World. There were the aforementioned Jewish conquistadors, but after a few more years, families began arriving as settlers in the new New World cities. They arrived in huge numbers. Occasionally, entire ships full of Iberian Sephardi Jews would arrive in Havana or Cartagena or Lima. Mostly, they arrived in Lima. In the New World, they had the opportunity to start over, to start new lives. There was ample land and plenty of opportunity, and arriving in Lima, on the west coast of South America, put thousands of miles of ocean between them and the Inquisitors. The governor of Lima would occasionally write back to Seville and inform the court of the arrival of yet another ship full of Portuguese conversos. 
and everybody knew what he was talking about. However, those ships were typically owned by a powerful converso back in Spain, somebody with the influence to protect those who had just arrived. Now, someone on board those ships had to have a license to settle in Lima. That was how you were allowed to settle in the New World. Often that license would be procured by that same powerful converso. But every family needed a license to settle in the New World, and a ship full of refugees with only one license on board usually presented a problem. However, they had a loophole. They could bring along as many servants as they liked. If they had only one license on board, usually the oldest man would say, here is my license, here is my wife, here are my children, and here are my 350 servants. Psst, they weren't actually servants. Now everybody knew what was going on here. The Inquisition, had they been there, would certainly have stopped them, but they weren't there. Now, imagine that you're the governor of a large-ish new settlement dealing in literal tons of Inca gold. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of tons of solid gold. That gold needs to be weighed and smelted and minted and counted and then shipped all the way home. Who would you trust to do that job? The Inca slaves, who you had just stolen all the gold from? The conquistadors, who were the sons of nobility that didn't usually have the skills to do that. No, you want merchants and bankers. Would you, in that situation, turn away a ship full of educated, literate merchants and bankers? Oh, and there's another thing here. Those settlers in the New World, those Europeans, were dying in droves. That happened any time a new population of Europeans arrived. New diseases killed sometimes as many as half of the first settlers within just a few weeks of arrival. And that ship of Jewish refugees, whichever one we're talking about, just so happened to have several physicians on board. Were you a governor, you would most likely not turn away that ship. Now, I realize that there are a number of cliché stereotypes about the Jewish people packed in there. However, the fact that these ships were full of merchants, bankers, doctors, and their wives, well, all of that comes from respected, accredited, published historians, several of them themselves Jewish, and what's more, those stereotypes are born out of the fact that these Sephardi Jews were able to read. They could write this was before Lima had a printing press, and not only could they write in Hebrew, but they knew Spanish and usually Latin and sometimes Greek. They also had a much better grasp of arithmetic than really anybody except for the nobility. And outside of perhaps Istanbul and probably China, these Sephardi Jewish doctors were some of the best in the world. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. I'm Jane Perlez 
longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. So, the Jews that arrived in South and Central America were tolerated, but even though they were necessary, they were never really accepted. They might not face the Inquisition in these colonies, but most governors insisted that they keep up the polite falsehood that they were Portuguese conversos. That was true for every Spanish colony in the New World except for one. Nominally, Jamaica was still under the control of the Columbus family during the early 16th century, but in reality it was in the hands of about 20 Jewish families that all lived there. The governor was a converso in the eyes of Spain, but on the island they were able to practice Judaism openly. Mostly they were able to practice Judaism because there weren't any Catholics on the island. See, Jamaica according to Christopher Columbus, was supposed to be a land so rich in gold that it eclipsed the sun. The only problem with that is that it wasn't. There was no gold on Jamaica. There was no silver, just a bunch of land. So all of the Spaniards, all of the Catholic Spaniards, well, in those early years of Spanish colonization, their eyes were filled with rivers of gold, with mountains of gold, and with aching maidens, so they left. Mostly they went to the main, where there were actual gold mines. The Sephardi families were, well, they were the only Europeans left on Jamaica. Within only about 19 years since the founding of the colony, well, it seemed like Jamaica was doomed to fail. But the thing is, the Jews really liked it there. There were sandy beaches and palm trees and good soil, and no inquisitors for hundreds of leagues around. So the governor, the patriarch of one of those families, bought everything that would be needed to start a sugar mill from someone in Santo Domingo, and then he sent word back to his king in Europe. He started off in that letter with the bad news. He told the king that, quote, no citizen has prospered nor kept his health for a day. End quote. But then he gave a little bit of a carrot. He described, quote, the south side of the island where the land is plentiful in beef and bread with very good parts suitable for navigation to Santa Marta, Cartagena, and the mainland, End quote. He went on to tell the king about his sugar mill idea and that much of the land of Jamaica was perfectly suited for growing sugar, which, you know, it was, and this was music to the king's ears. In Europe, sugar was at least as good as gold, and 
Not only that, it was a renewable resource. But there weren't enough people on Jamaica to work the land, not yet. So the governor recommended that the king send an additional 30 Portuguese families. That's a strange request. The king he was writing to was the king of quite a lot, but not the king of Portugal. So why would the governor request Portuguese families? Now, you might have already figured this out, but Edward Critzler writes, quote, In Crown correspondence, reference to Portuguese residing in Spanish lands pertained not to national origin, but rather was a code word for the worst heretics in his kingdom. When the communiques specified Portuguese, the king read between the lines, Jamaica for the Jews or the colony goes under. End quote. That's a bold tactic. It was almost extortion. Extremely polite extortion, to be sure, but, well, he was describing just how awful and useless Jamaica was unless the king made use of the governor's sugar mill, and he would only do so if the king sent him enough Jewish families to people Jamaica. Now, the king knew exactly what he was being asked, and he knew very well that Jamaica was now a haven for the Sephardi Jews. Remember that letter we quoted last time? There are only two cities and only one will have my church. Well, that letter was sent back to the queen, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella. But she died, and it was this king that received it. His name was Charles I of Spain, and he was the grandson of Ferdinand and Isabella. Now that's a powerful lineage, but not his only powerful lineage. From his father's side of the family, he had recently inherited the Dukedom of Burgundy and lordship over the Netherlands. They weren't yet the Spanish Netherlands, but he would make them so when his mother died and he became king of Spain. Then he was elected by various electors in many different provinces, Archduke of Austria, King of the Romans, and King of Italy. See, he was busy working his way toward being elected Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. That's when those letters arrived, informing him of the Jewish presence on Jamaica. The letter from the Royal Chronicler of the West Indies and from the Governor of Jamaica. And he was himself an Inquisitor. He was the chief knight of the Holy Inquisition, as it happened. He had no love for Jewish heretics, and he had absolutely no mind to help them establish a colony anywhere in the world. However, he was a busy man, and he didn't have time to bother dealing with a colony of Jews halfway around the world. Not only was he duke, archduke, and king at least twice over, not only was he the chief knight of the Holy Inquisition and a man attempting to become Holy Roman Emperor, well, he had other heretics in one of his kingdoms that were much more pressing. He actually knew Martin Luther personally, and it quickly became evident that Martin Luther's heresy was a real concern. Now, mind you, he got those letters about Jamaica right about the time Luther started becoming a problem. Germany was on fire. There were Lutherans breaking away from the church, there were Anabaptists, there were peasant revolts, the Jews were not his concern. Then, on the eastern border of Austria, to which he was the Archduke, Vlad Dracula's son and the house of Draculisti was overthrown by the Ottoman Turks. 
They were the last defenders of Christianity in their realm. Now the Turks had Wallachia, much of what would be Hungary, and an army of Mongols on their doorstep. And that army of Ottoman Turks, Wallachians, Hungarians, and Mongols was riding for Austrian lands. They were going to try for Vienna. Then the king of France, and this is well before Louis XIV made a deal with the Ottoman Empire, Francis I was this king's name, well, he made a deal with the Ottoman Empire, and he started making noises about war with the Spanish Netherlands, much the same way that the Sun King would more than a hundred years later. That is a lot on one ruler's plate. He had holdings all over Europe, and nearly every country in Europe seemed to be giving him serious problems. Luckily, there was one nation in Europe that was a staunch ally. See, Charles's aunt, Catherine of Aragon, had just married the King of England, Henry VIII. She was sure to make Henry VIII a lifelong ally to her nephew Charles and a devout Catholic till the end of his days. So, Charles had troubles. He had Lutheran revolts, he had two wars, and at least two separate rebellions on his plate. Wars and revolts and rebellions are expensive business. Luckily, he had all of those New World colonies constantly sending over treasure ships filled with gold and silver. But even with all of that gold and silver flowing into his coffers, it flowed out just as quickly. The armies of Charles and his many different nations were constantly on the verge of falling apart due to lack of funds, but he always got a ship just in time to ensure that everybody got paid. But if even one of those treasure ships was lost at sea, it would be a great blow. In 1522, Hernán Cortés sent three of those treasure ships from Mexico bound for Spain. The winds pushed them to the south side of Cuba instead of to Havana, which is where they typically would have gone. But that wasn't a huge problem. They could still make their way along the southern coast of Cuba and up through the Windward Passage between Cuba and Santo Domingo. There was an Italian explorer sailing the New World named Giovanni de Verrazzano. Now, he had explored much of what would become French North America because he was working for the King of France. But he had made his way down to the Bahamas, and then into the Windward Passage, at just about the same time that those three Spanish treasure ships arrived. He captured all three of them, just off the coast of Jamaica. Now, Verrazzano would likely bristle at any suggestion that he was a pirate. He saw himself, and was, an explorer. He mapped much of the Atlantic coast of North America for the first time of any European, and that seizure of the three treasure ships was an act of war sanctioned by the French king. It was not an act of piracy. However, Charles, the king of Spain, certainly thought that it was a clear case of piracy. He wrote a formal condemnation of the act and sent an ambassador off to the French king. When that messenger returned, he brought word from the French monarch, which read, quote, the sun shines on me just the same as on you, and I would like to see the clause in Adam's will that bars me from my share of the riches of the new world. End quote. This was the loss that Charles had feared. And he was aware that had there been a reasonable presence on Jamaica, a presence of armed merchant vessels and coast guard ships, 
well, that would have stopped the seizure of his treasure galleons by Verrazano. And keep in mind, this was an early treasure ship sent by Cortes himself. We're not talking about silver coins. We're talking about chests and chests full of Aztec gold. This was a major blow. He needed a presence on Jamaica, but Jamaica was close to failing. Now, I'm sure Charles would have preferred to send out a ship or two full of good Catholic noblemen and their retinues, a few hundred Catholic soldiers and sailors to guard the island and the waters nearby. But he was still dealing with the Ottomans and the French and the Lutherans, and there was trouble in Bohemia... Actually, there was a combined force in the Mediterranean of Muslim and Jewish corsairs who were really unhappy with recent events in Spain, and, well, they were menacing the entire Mediterranean Sea. We'll be talking about that later. So Charles agreed, since there was no one else, to send out those Portuguese families to Jamaica. He even sent them off with supplies, and fairly good supplies, enough to keep them alive for at least a year, as well as everything needed to get a sugar plantation up and running, and then the materials needed to build a fortress and start a small coast guard. He may have been a Catholic and an Inquisitor, but he was also, well, perhaps not the most powerful person in the world. There was the Ottoman Sultan and the Pope, arguably, but he was at least in the top three, well, he had very real-world concerns on his plate. He was not an ideologue. He was a pragmatic ruler. So he decided to utilize the Portuguese conversos rather than persecute them. He gave the Jews Jamaica, in essence. He put nothing in writing, nothing was made official, but as long as they didn't cause any trouble and had plenty of sugar to send back to Spain, he would be happy. There were 20 families of Jews living in Villa de la Vega, what would become Spanish town, and they went down to the water's edge where they had some docks built in what would one day become Port Royal. There, they waited on and greeted the 30 new families of Portuguese conversos at the dock. Now, we don't know if there was any relation between the new arrivals and those that went down to meet them at the docks, there may have been connections back in Spain that got certain families sent to Jamaica, or they may have all been complete strangers, but in one sense, they were all family. There were now hundreds of people here on Jamaica, all of them Sephardi Jews. They had been persecuted and pushed into hiding back in Iberia, but now they were on an island that belonged to them. There was no one on Jamaica that was threatening to torture them, or dominate them, or persecute them, or force them to convert. I can only imagine what it must have felt like for those 30 families that arrived on Jamaica to realize that they now had a, well, a place of their own. I, I, I can't imagine the sense of relief and the sense of freedom and joy that must have washed over them. When everyone settled in, they did actually establish that sugar plantation that Charles V wanted them to. They set up some modest fortifications using the materials he had sent, and they built up their docks. They chose then to settle down. They wanted to live lives of peace. Many of them had been 
involved in politics or the military, but now they wanted to live lives far from royal circles and far from war and far from piracy. However, well, actually, let's look forward about a hundred years. Now, those one hundred years were a busy century. During that hundred years, the Mona Lisa was painted, William Shakespeare lived, England went from Protestant to Catholic and then back to Protestant again. France was torn apart by a religious war and then put back together. Francis Drake sailed for the New World, and Queen Elizabeth fought Philip II in the English Channel. But on Jamaica, during that century, very little really changed. There was one big change. Most of the Native Americans on Jamaica died off, and the sugar plantations started employing African slave labor. But other than that, very little changed on Jamaica at least in the Jewish population. They were a much larger population than they had been, and Villa de la Vega was a much larger town than it had been. The Spanish king did eventually send out naval squadrons to the island. Now, mostly they kept to the dockside on the southern part of the island in what would eventually become Port Royal. They were there to guard against pirates. Now, those pirates were mostly Dutch and English, and there were a few problems from nearby Santo Domingo. However, the Jews on Jamaica didn't want anything to do with the Spanish naval squadrons or the pirates. They were happy to keep to themselves. As long as those Spanish squadrons didn't come up and start bothering them and ensured that their sugar shipments were kept safe, they were fine with that. Now, there is a bit of evidence to suggest that the Jews on Jamaica may have traded with or even given aid to some of those very early Huguenot Bucani over on Tortuga, but none of it is conclusive, and in all honesty, it's not even all that compelling. It would make some sense. They would have learned the benefits of trading in cheap goods stolen from Spain, but they were soon to be definitively forced to face the realities of West Indian war and piracy. See, a movement was taking shape, a movement to free their religious brethren. If the Jamaican Jewish planters did trade with any pirates, it would certainly have been a very small group of Dutch and English rovers that operated to the southwest from an island just off the Mosquito Coast. That island didn't yet have a name, and most of the pirates that operated from the island were very small-time, just open rowboats. They were looking for easy prizes, nothing too big. But in 1628, those small-time pirates arrived off the north coast of Jamaica. They had bigger ships, they had holds full of silver and gold, and they had stories to tell. Not only did they have stories and money, they had some new friends with them. If we assume that there were merchants that dealt in illicit goods on Jamaica, and we should assume that there were at least a few, well, they were in for a surprise. Those Dutch and English small-time pirates had brought with them a number of pirates that were not so small-time. Many of them were Dutch, some of them were North African, and all of them were Jews. See, the Netherlands was embroiled in a war with Spain, the Eighty Years' War, and these Jews that arrived with these pirates were, well, they were part of that war, but they were fighting a separate fight. They were 
Iberian Sephardi Jewish exiles, just the same as the population of Jamaica, or at least they were all the grandchildren of those original exiles. The difference was that many of their ancestors had fled Spain for Amsterdam or North Africa instead of the New World. When the Dutch sea beggars went to sea against the Spanish, a lot of young Jewish men signed up to help that fight. When the Moorish corsairs set sail against the Spanish in the Mediterranean, a lot of Jews signed up to help them in their fight. And when the Dutch pirates went to go join forces with those Moorish corsairs, a large number of those Jewish Amsterdam pirates went with them. This was turning into a new Jewish revolt against the new Roman Empire. That revolt spread from North Africa to the Netherlands to the North Sea all the way to Brazil. Edward Kritzler calls these young rebels a generation of warriors for Zion. Now, I wonder if any of those warriors for Zion knew that the population of Jamaica was Jewish. The Jamaicans themselves kept it quiet. However, when those warriors found out, they absolutely would have tried to recruit any young men that wanted to fight against Spain to avenge the wrongs done to their grandparents. Now, we don't know the details of any meeting that took place on Jamaica, but surrounding evidence suggests that it did take place. Were these pirates, these warriors for Zion, these rebels, were they brought down to Villa de la Vega to Spanish town, perhaps under cover of darkness, in secret, to tell their story to the town fathers? Did the leaders in Villa de la Vega go out to meet with them? We don't know, but whatever the reality, it influenced the future of Jamaica. You see, these Jews and Dutchmen and Englishmen, the pirates, well, they were all fresh off a fight with the Spanish up to the north near Havana. They had captured... Well, they had captured more than that Italian pirate, Giovanni de Verrazzano. Any of the merchants on Jamaica would have been, at the very least, interested to learn how they came by it, and many of the young men and women on Jamaica may have run off to join them. Even if they didn't run off and join them, they would have wanted to. The people of Jamaica probably gave these pirates aid. They probably gave them trade, and they probably gave them shelter. Now, we don't have a record of that. They weren't stupid enough to write it down if they did. But surrounding evidence that we do have suggests that about 1629, there were contacts made between the pirates and those warriors for Zion and the Jews on Jamaica. Even if they didn't send off any of their young people to go fight with the pirates, well, they were certainly sympathetic to this rebellion. More and more they began to see the benefits, the self-interested benefits, of dealing with these rebels and these pirates. But as time went on, and as those young people grew up and raised new young people, they began to see beyond the self-interested benefits. They began to see the benefits to their people, to their religious brethren, to their brothers and sisters across the world. And they saw the opportunity to deal a blow to Spain when the English arrived in 1655. Next time we're going to look at the homeland of those warriors for Zion who arrived on Jamaica in 1628. Not the Netherlands, but, well, we're going to look in some length at the Barbary Coast. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank also everybody who has helped to support the show, 
everybody who has become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has given a shout-out to the show online or in real life, everybody who has donated to the show through the website or left us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you happen to listen to the show, I couldn't do this show without the help of all of you, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have yet to check them out, I absolutely suggest you do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight